She had no dresses, no jewels, nothing. And these were the only things she loved. She felt she was made for them alone. She wanted so much to charm, to be envied, to be desired and sought after. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, amen. That was the description of Matilda Loisel in the magnificent 19th century short story by Guy de Maisopon called The Necklace. Madame Loisel was a middle-class woman, beautiful, elegant, stunning, but trapped in her class. She married a good, hard-working man who was a minor bureaucrat in the Ministry of Education, and they lived a good but simple life. She longed, as Maupassant says, to charm, to be envied, to be sought after. She was an elegant, beautiful woman with aspirations of a finer life, to live among the aristocracy. So one day her husband brings home an invitation from the Ministry of Education to a grand ball, as you expect to have in a great Parisian short story. And he expects his wife to be thrilled with his invitation. But to his disappointment, she was anything but. She was offended that he would bring this to her. Do you expect me to go wearing what I have? Take someone else to this ball. He asked, what would it take to make you feel like you could go with me to this ball and enjoy the evening with dancing and, and conversation and fine drink? She said, I have nothing to wear. What would it cost? She thinks for a moment and then gives him a number that's not too low, not extravagant, maybe just right. 400 francs, she says, which is not a small amount of money. Inwardly, his countenance falls because that is the exact amount he had saved to purchase a gun to go hunting with his friends the following summer. But he wanted her to go and to have the time of her life, so he gave her the money he had saved for himself to go and buy a dress, thinking that would be what it took, but it wasn't. Now she had this beautiful dress, but she looked at the rest of her body and says, it's too plain. I have no jewels to wear. He, being helpful, being a man, with suggestions, won't you take some flowers and make a garland and wear it? She was offended by the idea, I cannot wear a garland of flowers to this ball. His next suggestion she liked, why not go to your friend, who's very wealthy and generous, and see if she would lend you some jewels to wear for the evening? She does. She goes to her friend. She asks to borrow jewels for, for one night. And her friend opens this box to her full of all sorts of things and says, choose. Tilda chose this beautiful, superb diamond necklace. So with that dress and that necklace, she goes to the ball. 
and all of her dreams to charm, to be envied, to be sought after, to be the center of attention, all came to true Cinderella incarnate. She drank and she laughed and she danced until four in the morning while her poor husband was snoozing off in the corner. And then once the evening was over and morning was on its way, they find a cab and they make their way home rejoicing in the great evening. She wouldn't even wear a coat in the winter so that everyone could see her dress and everyone could see her jewels. And she goes home and she looks in the mirror one last glance at this enchanted evening before she takes everything off and goes back to her normal life. Clutches her neck. The necklace was missing. She and her husband go outside in the winter and they look out on the path. They retrace their steps. They try to remember the number of the cab that they could call to see if it was on the seat. They do all these things to no avail. After hours of searching, there was no necklace to be found. What do you do? So they decided to buy some time and to tell their friend that they had to get the clasp fixed to buy them a week's worth of time to find it. They could not find it. So in the story, they... They do the only thing they thought they could do. They, they took the box in which the necklace was given to them, and they go from jeweler to jeweler trying to find someone who could match the exact same necklace. And finally, after several jewelers, they come to one who says, I have that necklace. 40,000 francs. Now, thanks to the Internet, you can go and, and find out what... A modern 2022 value of 40,000 francs would have been in 1886 or whenever the story was written. At the bargain price, $250,000, they could replace the necklace. Of course, they don't have that kind of money, but the jeweler was a generous man and said, for you, 36,000 francs, you can have it. $227,000. But they felt they had no choice, so they buy the necklace. The husband cashes in the inheritance. He borrows the rest, high interest loans. He works another job copying documents in the evening. They dismiss the housemaid. They move from a simple home to living under someone's roof. And for 10 years, they labor to pay off the debt. For 10 years, they work day and night. For 10 years, they age longer than, than those months would suggest. They finally paid it off. One day, Matilda was walking one Sunday down the Champs-Élysées. She sees her friend. Her friend does not recognize her. She's aged like an old woman. She speaks to her friend. Her friend finally realizes it's Matilda and says, Oh, my dear, what's happened? Matilda tells the story and really blames the woman. Because of you, this is what our life has been like. This is what we have endured. This is how we have suffered. But the friend did not know the necklace had been replaced. And Matilda had this sweet sense of pride and satisfaction that you didn't even know it. That's how good we were. Her friend grabs her by the arms. And the story ends with her friend saying to her, Oh, Matilda, that necklace was fake.
For years at St. Timothy's, we have used the words that Paul wrote to Timothy, the words that are the ending of today's epistle. Life that is life indeed, or life that really is life. We like to use the Latin version because it's prettier. Verum vitam, life that really is life. And we use those words to frame um, several days that we use in the summer for our middle school and high school youth to, to take them away, to remove them from their normal context so that we can spend time in prayer and study and service. Because we know that, in, I know every generation probably says something similar, but I think we can likely all agree that this generation that's coming of age now is, is unique in the sense that perhaps as those of us who were older, when we were coming of age, there were institutions. There were things that I think we felt like we could trust. And if someone said something, either government or education, or frankly, to be fair, even church, said something, we could trust in what was said. We could believe it. But now we know that the credibility of almost every authority is in question. And again, to be fair, rightfully so. And so we're bombarded, and they are bombarded with images and messages and, and this understandable distrust of any kind of authority or institution. So bless them, they have to navigate this life ahead without clear boundaries as to what is true and what's, and what's false, what is real and what is fake. And coming to understand life that is life indeed, life that really is life, verum vitam, is the most important spiritual principle that they, they, must, they must cultivate. And Maupassant's story is brilliant because all the themes about what is real and what is fake and what is true and what is not are all beautifully and dramatically and thrillingly brought to, to the forefront, even though it's not a religious story per se. All of those themes are absolutely there. And that twist in the end, at least for me, I grieve for Matilda because of all that she had to endure for something that in the end had no real value. I grieve in the end because when you read the short story, and it's all online by the way, I hope you do read it. When you read the short story, she never really learns her lesson. You would think after laboring for 10 years and then coming to understand what is real and what is not and having a real perspective and appreciation about intrinsic value, she would, have, she would change, but she hasn't changed at all. She still thinks if she just had that real necklace, her life would be different. Everything would be a different course and it would be better. She simply doesn't get it. What is real? What is life that really is life? Scriptures today are all about spiritual versions of fake necklaces, fake diamonds, from Amos to 1 Timothy to Luke. I've been saying all day I'm envious of Luke, who gets to proclaim the gospel according to Luke. That must be nice. Every time I read a story about Stephen, he's always being stoned to death, you know? So, I mean, that's really something that I wish I could be able to do. But in, in Luke's gospel today, the, the actual St. Luke, not, not this Luke's gospel, but in St. Luke's gospel, we have the, the parable that our Lord tells of, of the anonymous rich man and Lazarus. 
Not the Lazarus who was the brother of Mary and Martha who was raised from the dead, but Lazarus who was the poor beggar at the gate of the rich man, who was too feeble and too weak to even tend to his own sores. And the anonymous rich man was the one who dressed in in purple robes and fine linen and, and feasted sumptuously every single day. And then when he dies in that great democratic act, which we all must face, he discovers that in Hades, purple robes and fine linen and banquets have no real value. Yesterday, I was in Florida for Sherilyn's grandmother's funeral, and as we were at the burial, before she was put in the ground, I was talking to my father-in-law, and we were waiting on all the family to get in, and so we were doing what you do in a cemetery, and just looking at the headstones. There was one lady who would be 105 now. She's still alive. You know, seeing all the, you know, you know what you do. And there was one large headstone with a name that I had forgotten, but... When my father-in-law started telling the story, I remembered the stories to hear about their relationships with that family. And, and the man and his wife were buried there. They um, started a very, very large trucking uh, company and became a trucking tycoon. And he was telling me that, and there were Florida Gator paraphernalia all around the headstone. He said, you know, he paid six figures every year for the number one parking spot at the Florida football games. I said, just for the parking spot. He goes, just for the parking spot. They would bid for the number one parking spot. He paid over $100,000 every year just to park. I said, look where he's parked now. I mean, if that's what you want to spend your money on, that's fine. I'm not judging you. If you have that kind of money, I wish you were a church member. But, but the point is that that sort of idea, I mean, he was now buried among people. You know, you can look at headstones and you can kind of figure out, was this headstone expensive or was it not expensive? And in that great democratic act of death, there we all parked together. There is no prime real estate. It's all the same. I begin to think, what is real? What has value? Now, when I say life that really is life and things that are real, I'm not talking about things that are make-believe and things that, that aren't. I mean, if you take the, the rich man, I mean, those purple robes and the fine linen and those banquets, those were real things. They weren't figments of someone's imagination. But when I say the word real and life that really is life, I'm talking about those things and that ordered life that brings us closer to God, that ordered life that brings us in contact with Jesus Christ. Those things that bring us close to God, the closer we get to Him is where we discover what is truly real. And I say that because God is the source of all that is. He's the ground of our being. He is existence itself. He is what it means to exist. And that is why the the last gospel at the end, which I know it may seem just one more extra thing and a bit superfluous, is so very important in forming us into this truth because I guarantee you after coming enough Sundays you can quote the first 14 verses of John's Gospel and you know that through him all things came into being and without him not anything came into being because he is the ground of all existence and the closer we get to him is the closer we begin to understand what reality 
actually is. And the things that move us away from God are the things that lose their value. Things that, while they might be tangible, at the end of the day, aren't real. The things that are truly real are the things that transcend the grave. The things that bring us closer to God and continue to help us in that progression to be in contact with Jesus Christ. All the other things, they're just fake necklaces and and parking spots at the end of the day. What was real to the anonymous rich man? What was the one thing that would bring him closer to God? It wasn't the linens or the robes or or the banquets. The one thing that was real in this story was the one thing he kept ignoring, and that is Lazarus. Lazarus. If he had only shown compassion and kindness and mercy or even acknowledged his existence, that interaction would have brought the rich man from being an anonymous person to someone whose name we might now know to bring him closer to God and in contact with Jesus Christ. Here was this man too weak to even tend to the sores on his body, and yet he stepped over him and ignored him. Yet he was real. And caring for the poor brings us closer to God. And while they may have nothing to their name, they have extraordinary value. Because you see, friends, it's not about money. It's about what money does to us. That's the whole point that Father Luke made in his homily last week. That's the whole point that St. Paul is telling Timothy when he tells him to encourage those who have means, who have resources. God bless you. Wonderful. Do good with it. Don't pretend that the things that we accumulate are the things that really matter, but hold on, he says, to life that is life indeed, life that really is life. And so, friends, when you hear conversations in church about money and stewardship, please don't be distracted thinking it's just spiritual fundraising. That completely misses the point. It's to talk about what happens inside and life that actually is life that's worth living. Verum vitam, life that is life indeed, life that really is life, is an existence ordered to bring us closer to God, contact with Jesus Christ. And life that isn't is to follow the things that that carry us away. Life that is life indeed is to reject those things that do not bring us to the love and mercy and grace of our Lord. Think about the pledge that was made on our behalf in baptism, one that, that we affirmed at our confirmation. Do you reject Satan and all the spiritual forces of wickedness that rebel against God? Do you renounce all sinful desires that draw you from the love of God and the like? Do you turn to Jesus Christ? Do you promise to trust in his grace and love? Will you obey him as your Lord? That's the well-ordered life that brings us to verum vitam, to reject all the things that draw us into a life of falsehood, fake necklaces, empty parking spots, but to turn to one that brings us life that is indeed. Just ask Matilda. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.